The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I love the passion. I love the enthusiasm. I love the fervor of that young man, that spoken word, don't you? This is the church. We're oftentimes just a hot mess, but this is the church. We're a family, a family that gets along sometimes and doesn't get along sometimes. We're a family. This is the church. God's grand glorious plan for the ages is the church. It's us right here. And when I look at that video, when I saw that earlier, when I saw the the welcoming video that uh, we showed at the beginning, I thought, that's us. God's grand glorious plan for the ages. This is the heart of God. This is what God's about. It's about us, the church. It's about his church. It's about who we are and what we're to do. And I, I love the fervor and excitement, the passion and the enthusiasm of that young man. But the tragic reality is the church around the world and even the local church is not that reality for many. One author said, uh, he said, being involved in most churches is like watching the Texas Rangers play baseball. You hope, but you never expect much to happen. <laughs> Fill in your team, LSU Tigers. I mean, everybody but the Crusaders, they always win, right? I mean, they always win. But, but the reality of it, there are a lot of places where there's a struggle, and that's what happens in the church. Even though it's a mess and a hot mess at times, God has designed us to take the word and to take the world and bring them together. The church is God's grand, glorious plan to offer eternal life, abundant life, to, to offer hope in the midst of chaos and calamity and confusion. He has chosen us to be the delivery boys and girls of that great news the church. For the next five weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at a topic called the church, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a branch of theology, which is the study of the church. And so that's what we're going to look at for the next few weeks, ecclesiology 101. If you study pneumatology, pneumos, we get the word pneumonia, we get breath out of it, study the Holy Spirit. If you study eschatology, you study end times. If you study Christology, to study of Christ. But we're going to look at ecclesiology, the study of the church, ecclesiology. David Platt wrote a book called Radical a number of years ago, and in that he used an illustration of this particular ship. It's a ship called the SS United States. The SS United States was commissioned back in the 1940s and finally completed 1952, so it goes back a long way, at the cost of $80 million. $80 million is a whole lot of money now. It was a whole lot of money in 1952. It was commissioned to be a troop-carrying ship. And David Platt in Radical plays out an illustration with this particular ship. It was a ship that was to be the fastest and could go the furthest of any ship that went to sea in that day and age. It was the fastest ship of that time. It, it, was, it, it could go 44 knots, which is 51 miles an hour. So you're moving a lot of tonnage at 51 miles an hour. It could go further than any ship at that time without refueling and resupplying. It'd go up to 10,000 miles. It'd go anywhere in the world in 10 days. It, it was an amazing naval architectural feat. It could carry 15,000 troops and get in a location within 10 days without stopping. An amazing feat in maritime architectural history. But there's a problem. The SS United States never carried a single troop, not one. In fact, if you were to go to Philadelphia today and you land in the airport, if you look off to the right, you would see the SS United States docked there. And what happened is they recognized that this ship was so nice that when the brass and when the VIPs and when the heads of state began to tour the state-of-the-art ship, they decided it would be better used as a cruise ship. 
And so rather than being a battleship or a troop-carrying ship, this particular ship became one that indulged many people of that day. It was quite an interesting uh, ship. It had, instead of 15,000 troops to carry, it was reduced to a ship that could carry 2,000 passengers in luxury. There were 695 staterooms, four dining rooms, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck. Imagine that, five acres of open deck with a heated swimming pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passage ship. Instead of being a warship for battle time, it became a cruise ship to indulge wealthy, wealthy patrons. Heads of state, VIPs, military brass, but not one time did it carry a troop on it. And in his book, Radical, what David Platt does, he draws an analogy between this particular ship and the church. And he said the church was made for battle. The church was made to, to be equipped. The church was made to go that way, but we've become a cruise ship in our day and age. He said a, a troop ship carries people to battle. A cruise ship carries people to vacation. A, a troop ship is a, goes at a hurried pace. A cruise ship goes at a relaxed pace. A troop ship is on a mission to take people into battle. A cruise ship is on a mission to take people to vacation. And as he draws out that analogy, he said, my greatest fear is that the church of today has become a cruise ship rather than a troop or a battleship. And the result of that is we struggle. We struggle to do what it is God has called us to do. So for the next five weeks, what is it that God's called us to do? That's what we're going to look at. What is the church? What's our purpose? What are we to be about? What's the mission of the church? See, the church is led by imperfect people like me, like the elders, like staff, like deacons. Imperfect people leading Bible studies, impacting a community. We're an imperfect people living in perfect world, seeking to serve a perfect God. So, So what are we supposed to be about? What are we supposed to do? What is our mission? What are we supposed to accomplish? What does he want from us? And my prayer is that after five weeks, I hope we walk away saying, yes, yes, yes. God's grand and glorious plan is the church. And we are privileged to be a part of it. To love him and to love one another. To love him and love one another. To to, to be in community together and, and to be those who are an example to the watching world. So I pray that at the end of this study, we will speak with the same excitement, the same passion, the same fervor that that young man did in the spoken word. So ecclesiology, a study of the church. If you have a bulletin, there's an acrostic on that. That's what we're going to do this morning. What is the church? First and foremost, the church is Christ-centered. The church is Christ-centered. If you have your Bible or your app, would you open or turn them on to Matthew chapter 16? Matthew chapter 16. If I were to ask you, when was the first time the word church is mentioned in the scriptures? This is where it is. If you were to pick up your Bible and read the whole thing, the whole Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, and if you're Italian like I am, Genesis to Malachi, he's my cousin. But uh, if you were to read from Genesis to Malachi, you would not find the church mentioned one time, not a single time in that whole section. You don't find that word used. You don't find it mentioned a single time. The first time the particular word for church is mentioned in the Bible is Matthew chapter 16. It's an interesting scenario. You're very familiar with it. Uh, Jesus comes to Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do men say that the son of man is? So this is Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. You ever play 20 questions when your car may be traveling somewhere, gone on vacation? This is 20 questions. And so Jesus takes a, a fastball and he lobs it right down the middle. I mean, it's a question all the disciples can answer. 
Who do men say that I am? He's not asking, he's saying, you know, we've been around a lot of people. What are these people saying? Who do they say that I am? That's a simple question. And then plural, they replied. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say others. Some say Jeremiah. Some say one of the prophets, Jesus. People are confused out there. They're saying you're a lot of people, but we know that, I mean, that's what they're saying. And so what Jesus does is he throws them a change up. It's a change up. So it's a fastball down the middle, who's everybody else saying, but then he turns to them and he looks from eyeball to eyeball, or eye to eye, I like to say. You'll get that. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And all of a sudden it's a change ball. It's a change of pace. It's one thing to say what everybody else is thinking. Another thing for you to answer that question. Remember in class when you got, the teacher's going to call on people and you didn't know the answer? What did you begin to do? What a bunch of you are doing right now, hiding behind other people so I can't see you, okay? And I can see, you know, Judas ducking behind John and I can see Bartholomew kicking a rock and looking down, not making eye contact. And I can see Andrew clearing his throat so he wouldn't have to answer the question. But one disciple always pipes in, who is it? Always, isn't it? And so Peter says, hey, I'll take a swing at the pitch. I'll take a swing at the pitch. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christos, the son of the living God. Hey, hey Jesus, you, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the Christos. You, you are the son of the living God. And, and Peter parks one like Babe Ruth of old. I mean, he just knocks it out the park because this is one of the greatest Christological answers, one of the clearest answers in the whole scripture. And Peter is spot on. You can see the Father in heaven smiling, the angels in heaven beginning to applaud. Peter, you're the man, baby. You got it. And Jesus is proud of Peter because he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, uh, bless are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, bar is the word son, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven gave you this information. Peter, you're right, you're a fisherman. You may look at my calloused hands and I'm from a one camel town of Nazareth and we came out of Galilee and we're nobodies, but, but Peter, you are right. When you say you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Peter, God gave you that answer. The father spoke to you and Peter, that, that's exactly right. You got it, Peter. So Jesus continues on and he says, hey, Peter. Hey, Peter. You know what, Pete? I I tell you what, you're Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that statement right there has caused more confusion among people over the centuries than a lot of God's word. See, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the question is, which rock? What's the rock that Peter's going to build his church on? See, many of you come from a Roman Catholic background. Uh, I'm Italian. My dad's family was Roman Catholic. Mom's family was French Baptist. We grew up primarily with mom, but went to mass on occasion. And this is, this is Roman Catholic doctrine right here, right? I mean, this is it. This is called the primacy of Peter. Peter becoming the first pope the primary, the first. And since then, a succession of popes to lead the church. And this is where it comes from. You are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. Peter is the rock. Who's the rock? Catholicism says Peter's the rock. But the problem with that has to do with, I believe, a false, I believe it's a false interpretation of that section of God's word. 
You see, if you were to look at Peter's name, which is Petros, the O-S in Greek, the ending, is masculine. You are Peter, masculine, O-S, right? You see it right there? It's pretty clear. You are Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So if the rock is Peter, you would expect the word rock to be masculine or or the use of that word to be masculine, right? To, To reflect Peter. But if you look at the word that's there, you are Peter upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. The A ending is feminine. So he's not saying, Peter, upon you, I'm going to build my church. Peter, upon your confession, I will build my church. What's the confession of Peter? Thou art the Christ, the son of the, 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 son of the living God. Peter, I'm going to build my church upon this rock, upon myself, not upon you. Church is not about a man. Church is about a savior. And when we look at the church, the first thing we need to say is that the church is Christ-centered. This is his church. Now, in the midst of this, in the midst of this discussion about interpreting this correctly, properly, don't miss the important thing here. The important thing he's saying is, Upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. Say that out loud with me. I will build my church. Let's pick that little phrase apart. I, Jesus. Jesus saying, I'm going to do this. This is my responsibility. Will. Now, I'm going to stretch you right here. In the English language, what is will? What tense is will? Not the name will, but that will. What is that? Past, present, future. How many of you say past? How many of you say present? How many say future because you heard all these other people saying that? Yeah, that's exactly right. He says, I will. So he says, this is going to happen. He says, this is yet future. The church was not birthed until Pentecost a couple of, uh, several months later, actually about a year later. And so he's saying, I will, this is going to happen. I, Jesus will future. I will build. The word build there is a construction term. We're familiar with it. He says, this is an ongoing project. A number of years ago, we got to go to Barcelona. We went to the Gaudi Cathedral. Have you ever been to Barcelona? It's quite interesting. The Gaudi Cathedral began construction. They began constructing it. It was, it was Gaudi's dream to build this temple to honor God. He started in 1883, and it's not finished yet. Sounds like the building project at TBC. Eighteen eighty-three, and it's not finished yet. It's ongoing, ongoing. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, this is a construction project. I am in charge of it. Will it's going to happen? Build. It's going to be me constructing this, not you. My, it's His. It's not Gary's church, the elder church, the deacon's church, not the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Bible church. You fill in the blank. This is Jesus's church. I will build my, and then the word there is ecclesia. I'm going to build my church. First time that word is used in the Bible, right there. I mean, we're we're way into the ministry of Jesus, never used before, and it's a compound Greek word. It's a compound, out, ekklesia, call. So it's those who are called out, the called out ones. So this is a very familiar term in the Roman and Greek world of that day. So if there was to be a, a town gathering, if everybody was to gather, how did you get info out? This is before Facebook, internet, email, television, radio. How did you get the word? A town crier would go out and proclaim for a meeting. And those that came to the meeting were the ecclesia. They were called out ones. Maybe the men had to meet. Maybe the women had to meet. Maybe the voters had to meet. Maybe the, the city government had to meet. That was the ecclesia, the called out ones. We are the ecclesia. We are called out of the world to be followers of Christ. We are the church as the ecclesia, the called out ones. 
And if the town crier came in and called you out and you didn't come, they had a word for those people. The town crier come to calls out. All the men come. Those that don't show up, you know what they're called? Idiotes. <laughs> if you didn't come, there was a Greek word for that. The idiotes. They were the ones who didn't respond to the call. Let me tell you something tragic. The call of Christ goes out to all men, all women, all people. Those that don't respond to the call are worse than idiotes because they're eternally separated from the living God. And so Jesus turns to the disciples and plays 20 questions. And he says, hey, I want you to know, Peter, you're right on, you're spot on. And not only that, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. If you have a key, it means you have authority. Peter, I'm going to give you keys to the kingdom. This is a little difficult section to interpret. I, I think what it means is that we have been given keys to the gospel, keys to eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life. We've got the keys to the delivery truck, and we can deliver it through the power of the Holy Spirit, not our own power, because Jesus says, I will build my church. I, Jesus, build a construction project. My, that, that's what he's the one that will is future. And we're in the middle of that future right now. Church, ecclesia, the called out ones, it's going to happen. We may be a hot mess. We may struggle. We may have imperfect people leading it. But I want you to know by God's grace, the church has survived for 2,000 years. It's a, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a true miracle. So the C is that it's Christ centered. It's Christ centered. Secondly, the church is hell's attacker. Church is hell's attacker. I get that from that same passage. If you go on, it says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of hell will not prevail. Peter, I want you to know my church will happen. My church will grow. My church will take place and it'll be a mess. It, it, there'll be persecution. There'll be splits. There'll be struggles. There'll be mean people. There'll be false teachers. There's going to be persecution. All that's going to happen. But the gates of hell will not prevail because I, Christ, am building my church. I'm going to tell you, my friends, we have 2,000 years of church history to look back upon. And, and the church has survived miraculously in the same chapter. This is when Jesus turns to Peter and says, I mean, Peter just made this great statement. And then Jesus says, I'm gone to the cross. I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. No, you're not. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, he went from, I mean, just from the penthouse to the outhouse in seconds, didn't he? I mean, it's amazing to see what's happening here. But the church survived. And then on the cross, he looks around, his disciples are gone. John's the only one at the cross. The other 11 have deserted him. They're in the back alley of Jerusalem, but the church survived. And then you go to Acts, persecution. People are dying everywhere, and the church survived. And, and then you have schisms and fractures in churches for 2,000 years, but the church survived. You have persecution that takes place, and you have people proclaiming God is dead, but the church continues to survive because Jesus said, I will build my church. It's going to happen. So here's the great news. We get to be part of it. That's the exciting part. We get to be part of it. We get to be part of what God is doing. All the way from the, the, the cross, all, or from Pentecost to today, we as a universal church that is all believers of all times, and we as a local church get to be part of everything God's doing. And that's a blessing. So I ask you a question before I move on. 
Were you involved in God's building project? Within the church maybe, serving kids, serving youth, serving singles, serving college kids. You involved outside the church? A small group of some kind? Leading something in your home? I got an email from someone last week and it said, uh, Pastor Gary, you've challenged us over and over to reach out to our sphere of influence. I started a Bible study at work this summer. I want you to know what an amazing God we have. We have the high privilege to be involved in serving our Savior. Are you? That's the church. Man, we are Christ-centered, hell's attackers. You got lost people around you. What are you doing about that? It's amazing to see and ministering, in our, maybe you're ministering in our community, maybe it's serving the impoverished. We've got a number of people at Feed My Sheep right now serving lunches, over 100 lunches today. We have, we've got a, a pastor's conference in Ukraine getting ready to happen. Danny Cunningham, our executive pastor, is there right now. Serving our community, leading organizations in our community, somebody involved in community organizations, make sure people know you're doing it to the glory of God. Maybe you have businesses in our community. I pray, I, I thank God for you. I thank God that, that you're running for office. We've got several folks who are uh, local officials or state officials here. We've got folks who lead community organizations. We've got folks who have businesses, folks that, and, and I pray that in the midst of that, you let people know why you're doing it. It's because God has called you to do it because of Jesus. That's what we're about. The church penetrates the world. We don't isolate from the world. Otherwise, we become a cruise ship rather than a battleship. Thirdly, we, the church is uniting the divided. It's uniting the divided. Turn your Bibles or your apps to Ephesians chapter 2. There was a great division in the first century church. You know that. I mean, in the whole first century, there, there were Jews and Gentiles and they hated one another. They hated one another. I mean, they got along like you know, Aggies and Longhorns. I mean, you know, they, they just could stand one another. And so you've got Jews and Gentiles. I mean, it was so bad that the Jews had a piece of land between, between two sections of Israel called Samaria. Samaritans were half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. The Jews hated them. And so they would literally walk. They walked in those days. They'd literally walk around Samaria about anywhere from 40 to 60 miles so they wouldn't get the dust of the Samaritan land on their feet. That would be like me saying, hey, let's walk, let's walk to uh, Austin together and we really don't want to go through Gerald because we know bad things happen and bad people are in Gerald. And so we're going to walk to Marble Falls and go into Austin. And you're going to say, big boy, you better go walk by yourself. I'm not doing that one. <laughs> or, or we're going to say, hey, let, let, let's walk from here to Waco. And, and, and we, don't, we don't want to go through Troy. In fact, I don't want anything to do with things named Troy anymore after yesterday. And, LSU getting beat by Troy. We don't want to walk through Troy, so, so we're going to leave Temple and we're going to walk to Rosebud Lot and then we're going to go to Waco. That's how bitter the hatred was. And now Christ has come. And look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off, that's the Gentile, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Things are changed and, and he himself is our peace. He, he has made both groups into one. He's broken down the barrier, the dividing wall. There was a dividing wall even in the temple where the Gentiles could not go to the holiest places to worship. In fact, there was a sign written there. If you enter as a Gentile, you take your life into your own hands. That's a seeker-friendly church, isn't it? You walk in here, you die. And then it goes on, look at verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments, contained the ordinances that in himself he might make the two, that's Jew and Gentile, into one new man, that's the Christian, establishing peace between the two. 
and reconciling them. I I mean, all of a sudden now, for the Jew and Gentile, they wouldn't even talk to one another. Now they're going to come to church and worship together. And and now their daughters are going to marry their sons. Can you imagine that? Now a good Jewish boy named Ivy can go and get a good Gentile girl named Susan and marry her. You, You could go to church potluck. If you're a Gentile, you could bring bacon and ham. And if you're a Jew, you can eat it now. And I say, to God be the glory. (laughs) Anything wrapped in bacon is good. And now everything's supposed to be okay. Really? It's that simple? You've lived your whole life keeping the law and hating Gentiles, and now you're going to worship with them and sit with them and intermarry with them and eat with them? You know, there's a lot of division in our nation right now. There's a lot of division. I grew up in the 60s in the Deep South in New Orleans. I mean, I was at the height of segregation and integration. And it was bitter back then. My high school was an all-boys high school. It was, all, it was a public high school. And the reason it was all boys is because we knew they wanted to segregate the sexes because they didn't want uh, us with, uh, with one another. Uh, they didn't want black boys and white girls or white guys and black girls getting together. Nobody ever said it. We all knew it. There was a race riot in my school all three years I was there. I played ball, so I got to know guys. Didn't matter to me if they were red, yellow, black, or white. I wanted to be good ball players. And there was so much hatred. And now we live in a land where we see a lot of that coming up. You want to know the answer to racism? Jesus. You want to know the answer to socioeconomic issues? Jesus. You want to know the issue, the the solution to gender division? Jesus. You want to know that the answer is Jesus. That's what he did then. That's what he'll do now. The dividing wall is broken. The body of Christ, there's no place for, for racism. There's no place for prejudice. There's no place for any of that stuff because we are all one in Jesus. In fact, what Paul says in the next verse is this. He says, there goes my Bible, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. We're one body now. There is no division. I want you to do this. I want you to, I did this all three, this is the third hour, third hour now. I want you to look around this room. Everybody always looks at me. I want you, I want you guys over there to wave at people in this section here, you guys in this section, people over here. I want you to look at one another. Look at what, don't look at me, look at one another. What do you see? What do you see here? Hopefully you see some diversity, not enough diversity. I wish we had more diversity, but hopefully that's what you see. Male, female, you see young, you see old, you see rich, you see poor, you see educated, uneducated, you see black, you see white, you see Hispanic, you see Asian, you see Cajun, Italian. We take anybody. (laughs) Because Christ is our common bond. We are one in him. We are reconciled. I would no more be in temple types one for Jesus any place in the world. Because of Jesus, I'm here. For many of you, because of Jesus, you're here, certainly here worshiping today. We look at that and we recognize Christ has done an amazing thing. He unites the divided. He, he does amazing things. He's also, the church is also the revealer of Christ. Part of our purpose, part of the reason we're here is to reveal Christ. Look at the last phrase down here, that last sentence rather. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rules and authorities in the heavenly places. He says, you know what? Even the angels in heaven are watching the church. They're watching us. They want to know what we're about. They want to know what it's like. They can't, they, they can't experience the salvation we have in Christ. 
And so it says the church is making known the manifold wisdom of God and the rulers and authorities in heaven are watching this. We are the revealer of Christ. We reveal Christ to the lost and dying world. We reveal Christ to those in the heavenlies, which is an amazing thing to think about. So one of the reasons why we don't show prejudice, one of the reasons why we serve, one of the reasons why we love, one of the reasons why we care for another, one of the reasons why we see somebody in need, we respond. One of the reasons that first video, we start schools, we start churches, or start hospitals, why we take water to those that need something to drink and food to those that are hungry and we give of ourselves and our money over and over is because we are the church revealing Christ to a lost world. And the people, the, I mean, those that populate heaven, the angels themselves are watching. And so, Oh, I'm supposed to talk about almost. So the church is a mystery. <laughs> forgot I had that slide. Third, three hours in a row, I forgot I had that slide. So the church is a mystery. If you look at Ephesians chapter three, it says the church is a mystery. A mystery is a technical word. It means something that has not been revealed yet. Something that has not been revealed yet. So as I told you, the church is not revealed in the New Testament. So Paul calls it a mystery. It's revealed in the New Testament. Mysteries are things that are difficult to understand. Okay, you read mystery novels, you see mystery movies and Things are difficult to understand. So I had this slide up at uh, one of the things that are difficult to understand for us as men or you as women, okay? That's a mystery to us. You are a mystery to us. So what are the top 10 things that men understand about women? There they are, right there. <laughs> You're a mystery, ladies, and a good mystery. And we're grateful for it, okay? We're grateful for it. So we are, the church is Christ-centered, hell's attacker, united the divider, revealer of Christ. We are a community of believers. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are saved, and they gather together day by day. When, when God was in, God had only Adam on the planet, nobody else. And he looks at Adam and says, Adam, it's not good for what? Man to be alone. Not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. You, you need a community. Uh, when you're alone, you struggle. You know, you know what blackjack Christianity is? You, you know how to play blackjack? Pastors don't know how to play blackjack. I just learned from people that know how to play blackjack. You, you play blackjack, it's you and the dealer. Doesn't matter the gal next to you, the guy next to you does it. You don't care what they do. It's you and the dealer. And we live in a world that believes it's me and God, nobody else. Hey, I got God, I'm okay. I don't need other people. If you were to look at our core values, it's on the bottom of your bulletin there. Our core values are personal surrender, community, authentic community. That's one of the reasons we encourage you to be in small groups over and over, community groups over and over, so you can do life with other people. So you can grow in fellowship with other people, so you can be challenged with other people, so you can be in the Word with other people. We are a community of believers. We're not to live the spiritual life alone. John Wesley, who said, uh, the most unchristian thing is a solitary Christian. Trying to live it alone, do it alone. But that's the world we live in. We, we live solitary lives. Somebody sent me this article out of the BBC. Italy woman marries herself in a fairy tale without prince. And, and I've got the whole article here. You Google it up some, take a picture of it, look at it sometime. This gal turned 40 years old. She decided when she turned 40, if she wasn't married, she was going to have a wedding. She's going to throw herself a wedding and she's going to marry herself. And so she bought a ring, she rented a hall, she invited bridesmaids, the pictures are in this article, and uh, she walked down the aisle by herself, and she's got five other gals, four other gals with her, standing with her, she had a cake, she, she had a reception, she had some pastor, she quoted vows to herself, put a ring on her own finger, it's called sologamy. S-O-L-O-G-A-M-Y, it's a big deal. There's a website, a U.S. website called I Married Me. 
they offer self-wedding kits. In Canada, there's an agency called Marry Yourself in Vancouver. Um, Single is the new normal. Celebrate your solo status at Urges. Um, That's the world we live in. It's the world we live in. Hey, I've got God. What else do I need? I don't need other people. We're Texans. We're the Lone Star State. (laughs) We don't need other people. We don't need a nation. We can feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, protect ourselves, fight for ourselves. We're a republic. God has made us for community. He's made us for community. But who needs the church? There's a sign back here. This is game day. Seek Jesus, not any church. That's the mantra today. I've got Jesus. I don't need a church. Nothing could be further from what Jesus died for because in Ephesians 5, it says he died for the church. The church. So the church is Christ-centered, hell's attacker, unites the divided, reveals Christ as a community of believers, and we're his bride for all of eternity. His bride for all of eternity. In Ephesians 5, it says, uh, we are without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And in Revelation 19, it says, let us rejoice and be glad. Give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride, that's you and me. Hey, the church is a hot mess. We're a mess. But I want you to know the church is God's grand glorious plan what it is. It's his plan. And I, I, you know, I don't know, guys, I mean, we're, we're just a bunch of average people seeking to serve a great God. And uh, I've seen God do miraculous things. I had the privilege to go into death row this week in Gatesville, Dennis and Ruth sitting right here. Dennis and Ruth go in every Monday. There are six women on death row in the state of Texas. And I went in with some preconceived notions. I've been in general population prisons, and in those prisons, usually a group 50, 75, 100 people, and you've got folks, you know, across, they, they run the gamut. You've got some that are really bright, some not so bright. You've got folks engaging, many not engaging. I mean, you just run the gamut. So I'm going to go to death row with Dennis and Ruth this past Monday, and I, I've got some preconceived notions. I've read about some of the women that are there, and uh, I'm thinking, well, this is going to be really hard. I mean, there are three ladies in prison cells on one side living in isolation. There are three ladies that work during the day. These three ladies get out of their cell one hour uh, out of the 24 hours in a day. That's it, every day, seven days a week, 30 days a month, 365 days a year, one hour a day. That's it. And I really expected ladies who would be disinterested, not engaging. Uh, I'm talking, and they're doing what you're doing right now, looking and wondering whether this is going to be over. Just just the opposite. I mean, I walk up to one prison cell and engage a lady for 10, 15 minutes, whatever time we had, next one, then the next one, and they're making eye contact. I'm looking through them through bars and through mesh and eye contact the whole time, average or above average IQ. And uh, then we go into, those ladies are in a cell. I sit down, do a Bible study with them, which is what our dear friends do every single week. They love on them, teach them God's word. Then I go into a room where these ladies can walk up to them and shake their hand, give them a hug. And uh, they sat down and same thing, engaging, talking. They've had questions written out for me. They knew I was coming. They've been praying for me for months because of my sickness. And I'm thinking, this is the body of Christ. All six of them profess to be believers. I'm not their judge. I don't know what that entails or all that, but I know they faithfully study the word. They're in the word, and 
And, and they're there because they've done bad things. This is the body of Christ, revealing Christ in a dark place. It's the bride of Christ. I'm privileged. I, I've done hundreds of weddings. And, and I still get chill bumps at a certain moment in every wedding. So all the dudes are up here. All the gals are up here. And then there's this guy. He's a gorilla dressed in a penguin suit capturing somebody's daughter. <laughs> and everybody's in place, and there's that magic moment. What is it? All of a sudden, the bridal march hits. Boom. Those doors fly open. And there's this gal who spent five hours getting ready. And she's beautiful. And this dude right here, if he has any sense at all, his eyes are locked on her and nobody else. And if he's looking anywhere else, I'll pop him in the ribs and say, (laughs) because that's his bride and all of her glory. And we may be a hot mess, but we are his bride to his glory, seeking to honor him as an imperfect people in an imperfect world serving a perfect God. It's a great journey. It's a great journey. And God's grand glorious plan is the church. Father, thank you. Thank you that uh, you had a plan from ages past to draw people to yourself through the spirit of God and through the church. And God, there are times when we recognize that uh, We're just a mess. We're not sure about our mission, our purpose, what you would have us do, where you'd have us go, direction we should do. We recognize we are feeble, imperfect people, but you're a perfect God who extends grace upon grace. And one more anything else, we desire to love you and love one another. And in the that, would you accomplish great things, great things in our community and around the world as we reveal in Christ alone to a watching world. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's go and be the church.